Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. At the time, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but by jumping right in, not being afraid to make mistakes, and surrounding myself with people I could learn from, I had no choice but to figure it out. Well, I'm ready to be fearless again. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. In fact, it's different for everyone, but there is a common thread. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Before each interview, I thought it would be insightful to not only bring my perspective as a Gen Xer, but to have a quick chat with a rising millennial who is on her own unique path to greatness. My hope is that she will one day pass the torch and mentor others. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. I'd like to introduce you all to Kaylee Smith. Kaylee's worked for me for the last few years, and I'm really proud to say that my company has helped her find her strengths, passions, and has guided her on her path to success. She currently runs my HR and operations, and to think just a few years ago, she had no experience in any of these fields. She is a hardworking, determined millennial whose perspective on life is always so enlightening to me. I'm excited to kick off the first ever podcast with her by my side. Hi, Valerie. I'm so excited to be here. This is the first time I've ever done a podcast or anything like this, so thank you for asking me to do this with you. Well, it's my first time too, so I guess we're going to figure it out together. We'll be just fine. I'm so excited to introduce E.G. Daly, one of the most influential and known voiceover talents in the business, who's most famously known for her portrayal of Tommy Pickles from The Rugrats, Buttercup from The Powerpuff Girls, Babe from the film Pig in the City, Baby Mumble from Happy Feet, and many more voices we've all grown to love. She's also an accomplished actor, landing pivotal roles in multiple cult films, including Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. Yes, she was Dottie, Valley Girl, Better Off Dead, a few Rob Zombie movies, and so many more. And if that's not enough, she's a hugely accomplished singer, songwriter, and a mom. I know that you are also very personally excited about meeting her as well. I'm so excited. <laughs> Tell me why. I, I grew up with EG. I grew up watching The Rugrats. I grew up watching Babe. I loved the movie Better Off Dead. Um, I dressed up as Dottie from Pee Wee um, for Halloween a couple years ago. There's this scene in the movie Better Off Dead where she sings, and I would act that out when I was a child on top of my picnic table. Can you sing it for us really quick? <laughs> I'd be better off dead. Oh, perfect. You have a good voice. <laughs> I love it. Well, I think she's going to love to hear that. Great. Well, she'll be here in a few minutes, so, I'm, so excited. Uh, I'm excited to hear from her. Welcome, EG. First and foremost, I really want to thank you for being here today. I don't know if you realize this, but you are the very first person who is doing the She Dynasty podcast with me. So it's really exciting. I feel super honored to be the number one girl. Hopefully someday we will look back at this. It'll be like a moment in history. Like the first woman who ever did She Dynasty podcast is kind of a big deal. I'm happy to be part of that. We want to hear all about your four S's. So we're going to go through those and, you know, really help people understand about your journey. That sounds great. Let's do it. Tell me a little bit about your early life. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up pretty much in like West Hollywood, right near like what's now known as the famous Fred Siegel's. And it was pretty moderate, little average neighborhood where we just... You know, we did things like ride our bikes and ride go-karts. And, you know, it was a real normal upbringing. There was nothing fancy. There was nothing glitzy about it. It was just very basic, real childhood. Awesome. How many siblings do you have? I have four siblings, so there's five of us all together. And what about your parents? Are they from here? They're French, Tunisian, North African Jews. So they basically came out here with nothing. And they found a little one-room guest house behind a house in Venice. 
and they raised the two kids there, and then they slowly started to build this little company and have more kids. So it's like a kind of a real rags to riches story. And were they married for your whole childhood? They were married till I was about 18. Then they got a divorce, which I, I was egging them on to do because they just seemed unhappy. And to me, I always thought, why would I want to be in a house where people are unhappy, where some people are like, no, we have to stay together for the kids. And my whole theory was like, get away from each other. You guys are miserable. So so you were okay with a divorce? I was totally, I was egging them on to get divorced when I was 17. Yeah. And do they speak English? Do they? They both have thick accents, even though my dad tries to act like he's like a cowboy. So he's got a French cowboy accent. He's like, gosh, dang, ding, ding, a boo. You know, he talks like that. So, um, but they're both like full on French accents. And they, even though they speak full in English, they're just, and they're fully Americanized. They still have a lot of their European thing about them. How old were you when you realized that you wanted to be kind of an entertainment business? I didn't really want to be in the entertainment business, I don't think. I think I just really liked something about the arts. Like I knew that I liked dancing. Dancing was something that my body was just built for. And I knew that I liked singing. And I knew that like eight or nine years old, I picked up a guitar book and I taught myself to play guitar and I was writing little poems and songs. And I always kept journals. So I always had a awareness about my feelings about things. So I just kept these really tight journals and wrote about everything, how I was feeling, and then a poem would come out of it. And then I'd start writing these little songs, which later I ended up singing in clubs later on in life. But So you knew you were creative from a very early age. I knew I was, but I didn't think I was an actor. I just felt like a bad actor. I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. I knew there was something about me and my ability to understand feelings and connecting, and then there was a disconnect when it came to actually putting it into the acting. And then somewhere as I got older, I learned to put it all together. But as a young girl, I just felt like I was a crappy actress. But I was determined to learn how to be really good at that craft. Whose idea was it for you to go on auditions? It's my mom's. I think she was a real strangely European, French, Tunisian, North African Jew stage mom. You know, she would literally say, I don't let you miss one audition. Like she had this obsession with it. So she saw the creativity in you and she helped kind of bring it out. She saw something, like a little spark of something, because... I didn't think I was a good actor. I just thought I was. But I knew that I could dance, and I knew that I could sing young, early on. And and I think she, she picked up on something, and she just kind of pushed me into acting. And I just remember thinking, I'm just not that little commercial-looking little girl. You know, I was like, well, that little girl has, like, perfect curled blonde locks and blue eyes, and I have, like, this nappy, Jufro, you know, little girl kind of color hair and and I just didn't feel very glamorous or Hollywood, and I didn't feel like when I went on those auditions, I knew what I was doing. I just I was like, I just don't get this at all. And so from the time I was eight years old until I was probably 16, I went on a million auditions and didn't book any. Do you remember your first audition? Um, not really. There were so many, thousands. Thousands? There were probably thousands from the time I was Did you like, go to school? I, she pulled she'd pull me out of school and I'd go to auditions. So I just I just kind of was on automatic pilot and I'd go on these auditions. But I didn't really like it and I didn't like how I saw people acting because it all felt fake. How are your grades as a creative? Because it's interesting because I, I kind of relate as a creative person. My grades were never really great, but I was always really good at creative things, but nobody ever acknowledged me for that. So I really look at people who are creatives who have made it yeah. and think, wow, because you're not really um, noted for that as a child. Yeah, it was terrible in school. I don't even know how I passed high school. I mean, I cheated my way through high school. I had answers on my shoes, answers on my wrists, and plus I had no parents that could t tutor me or work with me on my homework. So Isn't it like, amazing? You're so talented. There should be a whole other curriculum for kids that are creative that has nothing to do with math or English or science, just yeah, everything creative. Yeah, there really should be. And the key is, like, I don't really care. I do, I do really care. It didn't matter to me. I didn't have pressure from my parents because they weren't like, go to college. Like, they didn't go to college. That was the last thing they were telling me to do here. So college was never a discussion never, in your house? Never thought about going to college. At what point did you start to realize, okay, I could do this. Might, this might be a thing that might be right for me. I think it was kind of like what I was doing in high school was I started taking only classes I loved. Like, you had to do English and math and all those. But I really started focusing on choir, dance, drama. Choir, dance, drama. Those are the things that stood out to me. And the people around those realms were noticing that I was something about me and choir that was happening and something about me and dance was happening and, and acting that was still a little difficult. But I started watching people that were really powerful with their work. And I started like just zooming into them. Like I had this visceral desire to figure out what they had, 
what they were understanding about acting that was so powerful. And what it was was this ability to connect to what they were really feeling and why people go to see theater or see musical shows is because you want to feel things like, you know, and so it was, there was something at that moment when I started saying, I'm going to be that person that is going to be so connected to how I feel about things. I'm going to go inside people's bodies, pull their hearts out, lay it open on the table and have them feel things they needed to be feeling. I love that. that. That that. was my goal. My goal. And you've done a good job at it. Thanks, Cindy. Going back to the four S's that we talked about, would you say that the spark was that moment where you connected your real talents with that thing that your mom was pushing you to do? You realized that this was kind of your purpose in life. The spark for me was the moment I realized that me really tapping into my spark, the place where I shine the most, was where I was going to impact people and open up their spark. And to me, that's when magic happens, when when. People are really lit up. Other people start lighting up. Tell me, what did fame mean to you at the time, and how has that changed to what it means today? I think when I was young, fame meant, like, Academy Awards and speeches and everybody, like, bowing down to you and paparazzis chasing you. And the funny thing is the thing that I wanted as a really young girl that I started noticing is I wanted to be the best at what I did. Like I wanted to be the best actress. I wanted to move people. I wanted to be the best singer. Meaning today I look at it and it's like, I want to reach people. To me, that's like fame. Fame is like being able to reach people on such a deep level. And then you're getting, not only you're getting respect, but you're actually impacting people's lives. And that's a big difference from the little girl that sat in my room and had these little Academy Award speeches that just wanted everybody to like me today I don't really care if they like me but I want you to I want you to be moved and rocked by my work and respect and you. have respect for me and you've accomplished that thanks so I good feel job. like I have actually. you actually have <laughs> tell me about some of your first experiences auditioning do you remember any of the early ones did you feel like you bombed that you did a good job um my first auditions I felt were horrible I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know how to read the copy I didn't know how to be the fake little Hollywood girl. And it probably explained why I never booked any of those auditions from the time I was a little girl till I was 16. So it was like a numbers game. Eventually one will hit. That's what I was thinking. And then I realized the first thing that I actually booked was a guest star on Laverne and Shirley. It was like a really big deal. And I worked so... That's a huge deal. It was huge. I worked so hard to get that job. I, I prepared... And prepared and prepared and prepared and prepared. I remember the line and worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. I worked so hard for that one audition, which kind of set me up a weird thing in my head where I thought, you know, wow, this is this is like a lot of work to just book one job because I booked the one job. And then from that moment on, the confidence I got booking that one, I started booking all kinds of guest stars on TV shows. And then things just started snowballing. Isn't that amazing? The second you get a little confidence, all of a sudden things shift. Yeah, yeah. I understand you felt like you had to work harder than other girls your age in order to make it in Hollywood. Can you explain that a little bit? I think a lot of that was the part of me that was came from these French, Tunisian, North African Jews, and there was no nepotism, because I remember this word, you have to have nepotism, nepotism, and I was like, what is nepotism? And I looked it up, and I was like, I don't have nepotism, but I just had You didn't a, have any connections. I had no connections. No That's family, it, no connections. But I had a huge desire And I envisioned myself, like they say, you sit in your room and you imagine yourself collecting awards and thanking people for your award. And I had that. I had a really clear vision that I was going to make it happen. And I don't know where that came from because I had no hookups in Hollywood. That should be the title of my book. No hookups in Hollywood. And you still made it. Zero. And I still made it. Did you know anyone around you at that time that you would have considered a mentor or a role model? Was there anyone you really looked up to that helped you during this time? There was a man named Phil Moore who passed away a long time ago. He was an old jazz blues piano player. And he and his wife, they had this workshop when I was really young where you sang, like you got to sing songs and you talk about things. And he really saw something about me. Like he would sit me at the piano and have me sing old Aretha Franklin or Etta James. And there was something in the beginning of those years where I felt like that man really saw something in me. And then there were other people along the route. And I I have to say it's weird, but my mother actually saw something. And that was the thing I said. She constantly kind of like kept pushing me, though I think she had no idea what my talent was. She just had this I'm going to push. She's the little star. Like, I think my brothers and sisters said she had me up on this pedestal all the time. Like, this is the one. This is the one that's going to be my shining star. When you have an adult who sees something in you that nobody else has, 
It's an incredible feeling. It gives yeah. you so much confidence because there's yeah. other people, you know, your peers, your friends and other colleagues. Oh, you did a great job. That was amazing. But when there's somebody who's older who can look at you, somebody who's accomplished yeah. and really, you know, look into your eyes and tell you, wow, you've got something. Yeah. It's life changing. You know, it, I know it I have really people is. Like and that I feel bad life. for people that don't have that because it's a tough road when you don't have one, one person who's got your back in that area. It's, it's tough. Everybody to- needs a mentor. What's some of the best advice that you can give for people that are, you know, starting out going on audition after audition and just not nailing it and feeling that like it's never going to happen for them? Yeah, I would say it's really important to just stay very connected to the desire, that passion or the feeling for wanting to do this thing, because I think that's like a God given thing. Like, you don't get those feelings if you're not supposed to really accomplish things. I don't think those feelings get put in you if they're going to you know, God has no intentions of helping you along that. But I think, um, I just think it's about following your desire and again, staying away from people that don't support your desire because that's powerful when somebody keeps saying, ah, you shouldn't bother with that. Oh, you should be a lawyer instead. I think if you get on people's rides, you don't go on your own ride. And then you wonder why you're so miserable and end up with anxiety or depression is because you stop getting on your own ride. You ended up working really consistently in the 80s. It was kind of a big time for you. Yeah. A lot of big name movies. Tell us a little bit about some of those things that you landed and and how that changed things for you. Well, I think in the 80s, I don't know what happened, but I started to become like that strange it girl that was sort of ironically not your commercial type. You know, I wasn't type, I was kind of frizzy, nappy hair again. But I think it was there was something that happened where, you know, I booked you know, the guests on some of those shows. And then I started to book the Valley Girls and the Pee Wee's Big Adventures and and a bunch of culty films like, you know, Wacko, Better Off Dead, like a whole bunch of cult films started happening. For some reason, it was just my turn. It was my turn. I had been paying a lot of dues. I didn't book anything for a long time, which is what I always tell people, hang in there. Don't quit before the miracle. But something snapped at that point. And the sad thing is that I was still so obsessed with getting more and more and more, which is what happens when you're young and ambitious, that I actually couldn't experience the feelings I was having in being in the moment of actually doing all that. It's almost like I look back now and I'm like, wow, I was on Saturday Night Live in the 80s with a number one dance hit, say it, say it, from all over the world. I was on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. I was on every cult film you could be in. And it wasn't until more recently in life where I could look back and it was like, I can't believe I didn't feel all that when I was in it. Because uh, ambitious people are always thinking Looking about for the what's next. next. Moment. And that's a drag because you're not... It's a flaw. And yeah. It's a flaw in the design, I think. It, it's a strange flaw, but in a weird way, it's actually beautifully part of the process of aging. But the difference is that I feel it when I'm doing it and I f- see it. And when I'm in it doing it, I'm, I'm in bliss. I'm feeling it in every level of my body. There's no more like that having to look back a, a year later and, and and go, wow, I can't believe I did that. It's now like, I'm in it. I'm right. doing it. You know, I was just... Well, I think you and I are similar in that sense where the ambition drives you so hard to what's next that it's hard to stop and experience and really savor what you're doing until you're further in the future and then you look back and think, wow, that was really a great or special time. Yeah, you're just like, I bypassed it. I call that the letting your ambition get in the way of taking care of yourself stage, meaning, and sometimes you could be so ambitious that you stop taking care of other needs you might have, like, oh, I wanna be, I wanna be in love. Oh, I wanna have a family now. The weird thing was when I was super ambitious, there was also a big ambitious part of me that wanted to have children that I'm so thankful for that never left the building either because there was a part of me that was like, I want to have kids. I want to have kids. While I was also like, I'm trying to make this career happen in this in this industry that's so tough. But I stayed so true to the desire to have kids that I actually manifested having kids because at one point I was like, well, hell, I'll just have a kid on my own. I'll just go have a kid on my own. I'll go. Didn't the- matter if there was a partner. You it just- didn't matter for me because I wasn't meeting anyone that I felt connected to. And I was worried that I was going to be one of those actors or entertainment people that were too old to have kids and then regretting their life had passed them by being so damn ambitious that they didn't stop to enjoy their full life in balance. It's not balanced. You actually even booked a major record deal with your single Say It, Say It and that whole album. Tell us a little bit about that time and how that added to your confidence. What happened was I chose to do this play that was called Tansy. 
And the play was about a female wrestler. They're like, do you want to star in this play? It's a musical. I'm like, are you putting the band together? Will I get to sing because you're putting the band together? They're like, yeah, it's a pro play. We'll put the band together. There's a full-on director. It's a full professional play. And I was like, I'll do it. So I did this play because I had the desire to sing because that's what I wanted to be doing because I loved singing. Well, the next thing, you know, because I do this thing that I love, this thing blows up. The play becomes huge success. I end up getting a major voiceover agent at that play. Major record labels come to the play and start bidding over me. Major labels. I sang th- three or four songs in the musical, and I got a massive record deal. All of this. So was, by doing one thing, it opened up a whole bunch of other doors right. for you that you didn't even expect. By doing something that I wasn't doing because I wanted to make money at it, I wasn't doing because I wanted fame at it, I just wanted to be singing. That was the key. You know, all these, th- I fell in love with someone. Like, life is amazing when you start making decisions and moving on what you love. And then all these things that you've been wanting your whole life took falling into your lap. That was the magic of that play. And say it, say it was number one. Say it, say it was the number one dance hit off the record that I signed with that label. That's first unbelievable. Label. That's number huge. one all over the world. Wow. Yeah, from this one play that I did because I wanted to sing, not because did you I sing won- that song in the play? No, it was different. They just saw the talent in you, and then you got they a record just heard deal. my voice, and were like, "Sign her up." And the next, you know, I was cutting a record in London and New York and Germany, recording with all these people. And the next thing, you know. The song becomes the number one dance hit all over the world, so I toured all over the world. It was like one thing led to the next, but the key point here, which has been the thread for my whole life, is noticing when I stop making choices, like, I feel like singing again, you know, following that little desire. Those are the keys that will lead you to something magical, not, I feel like being famous. I feel like making a lot of money. Just do what's true to your heart and the doors will open. Yeah, you just follow your bliss and your desire. And then all these other things that you can't even imagine start happening. Is Say It, Say It the song that you performed on Saturday Night Live? Yes. That's a big deal to perform on that show. It was a big deal. It was like a huge thing to be on Saturday Night Live, to be the musical guest. And then... On Dick Clark's American Bandstand, I sang Say It, Say It Again. It was a huge opportunity. You just mentioned that you fell in love during this time also. Tell us a little bit about that relationship. During the play Tansy, I happened to be in this acting class with this actor. And he was just like so, he looked like such a, uh, you know, Viking god that I was like, I don't even know, look at that guy. He's like too much. So good looking, you couldn't even look at him. I couldn't even look at him. I was not even go there. But he happened to be in this class. And then one of the nights at the play, John Eric comes. I didn't really meet him. I didn't know he was there. But apparently he got my phone number from my lead actor in the play. And he calls me at like um, 2.30 in the morning with this low voice. Uh, this is John Eric Hexum. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I came to your play and I fell in love with you at your show. And I was like, oh, my God, that that actor god guy, the Viking god, too hot for me to look at, has said that he's fallen in love with me at my play. I was like, oh, that's kind of cute. And he goes, I'd like to come tomorrow night and take you to dinner after. It was like a fairy tale moment, like super, like I was like giddy, you know. I was like, oh Was that God. the first time you ever fallen in love? I mean, I'd been in love like with somebody that I couldn't have when I was 16. I cried a lot. I was like, I want him. So this was like the first time it was this reciprocated. This was like a real... Um, I was a real. I was in love with him. With a super hot guy. A super hot guy. He was also a rising star at the he time. He was a huge rising star. He was just starting to blow up, and we. He became my boyfriend, and we. And it was all because I said yes to singing in this play. Again, I have to emphasize that because it's such a powerful thing to just start living your life and making choices just because you want to do something. But you know, I fell in love with him, and we just we dated for a year until the moment where he had a tragic accident which is kind of yeah so this became a huge snag in your life something that really affected you on a deep level so tell us about how john eric's death affected you so those you know him he he's this amazing actor was on a series called cover-up that was blowing up and he started getting involved in like location scouting and he was doing so much that he actually wasn't in the moment and i was watching him and i remember him being like it's not happening fast enough it's not happening fast enough and i remember thinking like What's not happening fast enough? You're starring in a huge TV series. You're you're doing amazingly well. What's not happening? I remember watching him and writing in my journals that he was like a time bomb ticking. I wrote it. And then, you know, we we ended up spending a lot of sweet time together right before. And then I was supposed to have lunch with a girlfriend of mine. And I called her and said, I have to cancel because I feel like he's, I have to go see him on the set today. Something's off. 
which was just total instinct. You knew something was up. I just knew something was off, and he was angst and strange and stressed. So I canceled the lunch date. I called in a pass at the studio. I went to go see him, and he was darling, and he just held me on his lap and put his arms around me. It was real gentle and sweet. And I was so happy I went there because it was a really sweet kind of quiet moment that we had where he just had his arms around me. Was he acting? And then I left in literally a half hour. Right when I landed at home, I got a call saying, you better go to the hospital. He hurt his head. And I was like, John Eric hurt his head. Did you realize how serious it was at that point? I was just like, oh, well, I'm going to, I, I probably should pack because we're leaving for Vegas. And he's like, no, you should go to the hospital. So I literally just grabbed a couple things anyway. Just like grabbed my bag real quick. Because you thought you were still going to Vegas. Of course. Yeah, of course. You don't think, you know. And he always hurt himself. He was like an acrobat. He was always breaking his, this, cutting himself. You know, he was an acrobat. And I get to the the hospital and I run in through the, a different entrance. And when I go in, I'm coming out through the emergency through a different entrance. And they're all sitting in there, like the crew and the grips and... One guy's crying, one guy's praying for a Bible. And I was just like, what's happening here? Like, it was so surreal. And then they pointed at me and said, that's his girlfriend. And then they let me in, which was strange, because normally in an ER situation, they don't. But they brought me right in, and they were just starting to cut his clothes off. And and he had this little gash in his head. Not brutal, not gruesome, just a little gash, which was... Was he conscious? He was kind of trembling and looking upward. And what that little gash was... The prop gun that he was holding, he put it up against the temple of his head. And because he put it up against his skull, it's made of gunpowder, wax, and paper. It shot a piece of his skull through to the middle of his brain. If it was two inches away from his head, it would have probably been fine. But because it was directly on his head, he... So the pressure of it actually pushed pushed a piece of his skull into his brain. Yeah, into the middle of his brain. So that was like the beginning of a nightmare. And I was like, oh, my God. So then they did surgeries. And then it was Did he know you were there? Were you able to speak to him? Well, he was still there and kind of trembling and looking up. And I just was talking to him by the side of his head, just very like, I'm here. I'm right here. You're going to be okay. And just trying to give him comfort. And then I had to leave because they had to take him for a surgery. And I remember them saying, we have to do surgery or he'll die. And I was thinking... Well, that's a pretty big thing to say to somebody. Maybe you should check. My brain was thinking, maybe we should look for a, a brain surgeon specialist. Like, that's what I went to. Like, well, do you have the right doctors here? Like, is this the right that's hospital? That's a good question. But there was no time. They had to act quickly. Yeah, there was no time. Yeah, so I actually documented all this on my in another one-woman show I did called Listen Closely. It's, the whole thing is kind of live documented of what happened. It was pretty crazy. So you left the room and he died in surgery? No, no, I left the room. They put me in a special little hideaway room because the press was coming in. And they kind of put, took me away so I could have some privacy. And then they had to go back in a couple times. And then he was just in this bed. And it was like a week long of watching him just sort of slowly not quite be there in his body. Were the doctors optimistic after the not, surgery? Not so much. So the whole thing was a bit crazy and and traumatizing and devastating. And I didn't know how to process it. I, I didn't even know how to process it. So how were you able to bounce back from something so tragic? I mean, here you were having all this success starting to happen and yeah. you were in love and things were going down the right track. And... All of a sudden, like yeah. major tragedy. Yeah, it was tragic. I wrote about it. I wrote about it. I wrote that woman show, and I wrote about that the way I was feeling. And later, I used that in the show. I wrote about how I was feeling. I wrote some music about. Were you it. able to function during that time? I was and a little continue- freaked out for a little while. I honestly moved. I was living somewhere, and then I just up and moved, and I went to go live at a girlfriend's house. But were you able to continue to work and there was a moment where craft? I just didn't. It didn't make sense. Like that's what I wrote in the. The show's called Listen Closely, but I wrote how, like, how are you supposed to just, like, what are you supposed to do? Just go to work, go to a party, move on? Like, I was so confused. Like, something so giant had just been sideswiped underneath that it was like, I was supposed to wake up and go to work again and go do my normal tasks. But there was such a strange, I felt really disassociated at that moment. So I... I honestly didn't want to talk to a lot of people because a lot of people wanted to talk about it at the sure, time. There was a lot of questions. And I didn't want to talk about it. I just sort of felt so weirded out by the whole thing and so devastated that he just was taken out. But the strange thing was he he couldn't be in the moment. He wasn't in the moment. And what do you think happened that day? Was he just goofing off? Yeah, I think he was just 
I think he was distressed and playing. I honestly think when you're not taking care of yourself, when you're letting your ambition get in the way of taking care of yourself, that's when you get a ticket. That's when you stumble. That's when you bump your head. That's when you uh, accidentally cut yourself with a knife. I mean, these are, that's the nature of like how things work when you're not in alignment and, and grounded. That's why people go to yoga and get centered and meditate. Like get centered, get present with your day so you can have a good thriving day. But when you're not resting and your life is running away with you, that's the time you have to take it very seriously because things happen. It seemed that part of your healing process was very much about um, creating your play. Yeah, the healing was I did a lot of writing at the time, which I again later used in the actual One Woman Show, which is Listen Closely, which is all it. It about- was incredible. Thanks. Thanks. It's all about listening to your intuition, listening to your inner voice. So all, see, this is what I'm talking about is like all those things and even that tragic of an incident and even watching this man and saying, what's not happening fast enough? What do you need to feel okay in your body right now today? Because everything is good. And that was a huge lesson for my future because I saw then what happens when you don't start to get present with your moments. So success can almost be like a drug in a sense where you need more and more... Yeah, it's like, it's good to be passionate and have desires and drive, but it's important to know that everything is beautiful time and things work out in their own perfect time. And you could try to rush it, but you can't make a baby crawl before it's ready to crawl. It has a certain time period. So it's all about allowing the right timing to come in for things. So the 90s, the 90s seemed to be a time of reinvention for you. You landed some really huge cartoon voiceover roles and became a major power player in the industry. Talk a little bit about how you sh- had such a shift. Well, I never in my life grew up and said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a famous cartoon. When I grow up, I'm going to be Tommy Pickles. I mean, you don't, I, you don't do that, I don't think, normally. Normal people don't do that. I, I shouldn't say normal people. There's a lot of artistic people who want to do animation, but that wasn't my thinking but I think because of you people are doing that now I think because you you've paved a road for people to realize that being a powerful and successful voiceover artist is a thing yeah that's cool yeah I think so maybe because now more and more people want to do it I've met a lot of young people that literally have said to me when I grow up this is what I want to do that's amazing and you're part of the reason I love that I love that. Yeah, because when I grew up, that's not what you didn't even, I didn't think about any of that. You know, I didn't do any of that. A thing that I talk about with a lot of people is like a thing called offshoots. What I share with people is like in life, you can have this idea like, I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to be an actress. So I do this play and I do this singing. And then some guy hands me his card at my play that I did and says, taps me on the shoulder and says, here, I'm a voiceover agent. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. But I'm an actor. I, I don't really do voiceover. But because I've really trained myself to be open to offshoots, meaning things that just come at me in strange ways that are sometimes just synchronicity or God. So I've trained myself to always be open. So I'm like, cool, I'll take your card. And I called him and I went on my first audition with him. Do you know that a few times I've walked into restaurants just because you know I work in advertising and I've had waiters who I thought have had incredible voices and I've cast them in commercials just because I like their voices and they're always shocked. It's so great. What a gift, right? Right. It's but been see, it's been fun to do, and but you really always trust surprised. yourself. That's the thing that I love about you is that you trust. I want to use that voice. You don't overthink it like, oh, I shouldn't use him. He's just a waiter. Or I shouldn't. You go with your instincts, and that's what I do. I was like, I'm going to follow this thread. No, I, I hear d- the talent, and I know that this person can do it just based on. And they don't even know it, but I see it. It's so great. But that's why you're so good at your thing. Well, that's what happened. This guy handed me his card and. I went on my first audition, which was for some Corey Hart radio commercial, like Corey Hart, the new album on EMI, you know, one of those, which I had never done. I was like, I don't even know how to do that, but I certainly know how to imitate those. And the next thing you know, I get an audition for my first cartoon ever. And they send me, they give me a little picture of it. I wasn't even going to go that day because I was having my carpets replaced in my apartment that day. And I was like, I can't go on this audition because I have people in my house working, but I'll go on the next one. I mean, my agent's like... Because at that time, you never know when something's going to be successful. I didn't successful. think anything. I'd never been on an art cartoon audition. He's like, you should go. It's a good one. And I was like, no, I'll get you on the next one. And he goes, no, I think you should go on this one. I was trying to tread lightly because I just met this man. I didn't want to disrespect him. But I said, all right, I'll go on the audition. And I literally told the crew that was working my house, I'm like... Please don't rob my house. I'll be right back. I went to the audition. I had been doing this little voice since I was a little girl. 
right? When I used to walk around the playground with my best friend holding hands and we'd be like, I would like a glass of water and I'm not sure if I like that so much. And I would do this voice and then I get this claymation on this audition and my brain remembers the voice I did since I was a little girl. And I'm like, can you do a voice that fits this little claymation? I'm like, That's a, that looks like the voice I've been doing my whole life since I was a little girl, right? So that's another thing. Like, l- follow those things you've been doing since you were a kid. Those could be the goose that laid the golden egg. And that's exactly what happened. I booked that job. And that job was? Tommy Pickles on Rugrats. My Unbelievable. First, uh, like, only the, one of the most successful cartoons huge. ever. 14 years, three or four feature films, commercials, dolls, toys all over the world, all over the world. So who knew? Good thing you went to that audition. Good thing I went that day. That guy was Good smart. thing my tribe, who I've learned to trust, my tribe, when they say, I think you should go on this one. You know, I trust those people today. Let's talk about your personal life. All right. You met and married your ex-husband, Rick. Tell us a little bit about the Rick story. There, there came a point in my life where I really wanted to have a kid. And this is why I was saying... Like, I didn't want to be that actor or that singer that just was so ambitious. I never made time for balance and my personal life. So I go to my doctor and I say, I don't know when I'm going to meet someone, but I'm getting older and I want to have kids. So she's like, okay. And I'm like, I'll do it myself. I have a great career. I make a lot of money. And a lot of people around me were saying, that's selfish of you to try to do that. Selfish to the kid. And that's, and I kept saying, I cure that for you. That might sound selfish, but for me, it feels divinely right. I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you. This feels right for me. I said, if you can't support this decision right now, I don't want to hear it. I talked to my doctor. I'm like, I'm going to have a baby through insemination or whatever, or talk to a friend. Or, And we had it all planned between my next birthday and Christmas. I was going to do this thing. And I was clear. And what happened is two months before my birthday, I go to a barbecue, but I met someone and we ended up hanging out. And also... I read the book uh, Pat Allen wrote called Getting to I Do. It's a little bit old-fashioned, but I love it. It's a great book. And I read that book, and I just started putting energy into what I wanted. You know, you want something, you just start putting seeds around about it. So I read that book and a book called The Rules, and I started reading books about relationships and to support this desire. And the book said, you know, date the guy that's really pursuing you. So I was like, okay. This guy I met at a barbecue is really pursuing me. I had another guy I was dating at the time. He wasn't really. He had some ex-girlfriend who kept coming into the picture. So I made the decision to just focus on that guy, which was Rick Solomon, my kid's dad. And we um, we ended up hanging out for like five weeks. And then he was like, you want to go to Vegas? It was the 4th of July. I'm like, sure. And I sort of fell infatuatedly in love with him over the five-week period. And we went to Vegas, and then he asked me uh, if I wanted to marry him. And I was like, mm-hmm. Five weeks in. Yeah, five weeks in. It wasn't even like, yes, I'll marry you. It was like, mm-hmm. It was like as if he asked me for a piece of cheese or something. It was like, would you like a piece of cheese? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what that was, but there was some deep-rooted, big, fat hell yeah in my body. So I married him, and it found out that we conceived our daughter that night on the 4th of July in Las Vegas, five weeks after. The night you got married. One of the most pivotal, another one of those pivotal moments in my life. A shift for you. A shift, huge shift. How long were you guys married? We were together for like seven years, I would say. I think our marriage was six years. And it was a tough marriage. It, It was tough because I didn't know who he was. But I still knew something was right. And now I was deep in, pregnant, married, didn't know him. And then he had some battles with drugs, which is pretty known and. And uh, it was tough because dealing with drugs is tough, you know. And I, I felt alone a lot. I felt... But now you have two kids, two beautiful yeah, daughters. Yeah, so we hung in there, and somehow we ended up having both our kids, which I, when I married him, I honestly was like, ah, oh, I'm happy if I married the guy for a year and have this kid and then move on and find somebody else. I didn't... I never thought, like, I'm going to have to find this person and be with them forever. I never thought that. I know you guys, you and Rick went through a tough time for a while, as a lot of people who divorce do. Um, but now your relationship has taken a complete 180, and you guys are really the best of friends. Talk a little bit about that, because I think that's really inspiring for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, because you can stay ugly with people, but what's the point? Like, what's it serving? You have to ask yourself, is it serving anything? I think when you're married and you have kids or you divorce, like, your kids are going to come first for the rest of your lives. Your kids are 
lives are the most important thing, you know? So we, of course, when you first divorce, it gets a little uncomfortable and painful and ugly. And there's all this, these feelings that come up. But once we started to get through that, we started navigating like how we were co-parenting and we didn't do things the way normal people did. I think we didn't have like visiting hours for some people. It's really necessary to do that, but I couldn't with him because he was on drugs a lot. So I was just happy that he was seeing the children. I just wanted to make sure that they knew they had a dad there because I knew deep down he was wanting to be their dad and not be on drugs, you know? So I made sure that I made, I had an opening always for him to be, to step in. And some people thought that was crazy because it was like, but he's still doing drugs sometimes. I'm like, well, he's not around my kids on doing drugs. He's just in and out of doing drugs and wants to come see the kids in between his binders. So you're always there just kind of making sure. I want to make sure my kids had something with their father. I think it's really important. It's hard to grow up without your father. It really is. And it's not, you know, that's probably an important gift that you gave them to to know that, you know, he was going through some hard times, but he was, you know, still a human and a person who loved them. He loves his daughters, but he was sick. You know, it's a sickness. So there were periods where it was really tough and Tough for me because I was raising two kids by myself, basically. I didn't try to take crap tons of money from him for child support when he started doing really well. I really just felt in my heart, like, I don't want anything that's not genuinely right. You just wanted to live in peace. I did. And we did. And we really did. And so years and years of staying really copacetic, like we go on traveling on vacations together. I love that you do that. Yeah, I think we that's did it. amazing. But I'll tell you, there's been a transition there. For 17 years, we've traveled together. We go on vacations He's lived at my house for a year at a time. I've lived at his house. We've shared our lives. We You're like family. We are family. We are family. However, you're just not sleeping together. No, exactly. And so for some strange reason, it's worked for a long time. But then recently, like just this Christmas, I had these feelings of like, it's time for me to start to branch out. And now I'm kind of ready to find my own like soulmate friend. Like relationship, you're ready for. To I'm do ready it again. for another partner, but that's going to be my intimate life partner. And I've dated a lot, but I wasn't really deeply looking for my soulmate per- person. And I think the reason for that was because I'm so close with my ex husband. Because deep down, I was always like, "Oh, I've got a family." Well, he filled a void for you, so there was not. He filled a, a big void, and I think that's that was the next the next transition in our love for each other is allowing each other to go off and try to create more of for what you and want. And he's really food. healthy now and doing well, oh, right? he's doing amazing. So he's sober eight or nine years and he's done really well and he's an incredible dad. He's a real big participant in all in all of our lives. He's, he's an incredible man. How has motherhood changed your life? How do you consider that to be a part of your success? To me, it's been the most deep-rooted production of my whole life of all the projects I've done it's like I was very aware as a little girl that I didn't feel like I got a lot of the things I needed I didn't feel like I was heard enough or felt enough or touched enough or in my heart and I feel like I've gotten the opportunity to give my kids all the things that I didn't get I feel like it's my passion to make sure that they feel heard it's my passion to make sure that they feel supported all the things you didn't feel yeah and And it's sad, and sometimes it makes me sad because I feel like, oh my God, I didn't have it. I didn't get any of this. How the hell did I get through? I I always think that when you are an adult and become a parent, there's only two roads you can go down. And one is the road to be exactly like your parents, and the other one is to fight hopelessly to be everything that they weren't. That you know, was, that and it seems like that's that's yeah. the one that you've taken hopelessly. I mean, there were things that were beautiful about my. It's harder. My that road's harder. Yeah, my parents had some great things. My my mom taught me some great things. I'm a lot like my mother. She's an amazing woman. However, she didn't come from the culture of like, how are you feeling? And my dad was like, if you cry, he'd be like, stop crying, stop crying, and you'd be stop like, stop putting on the the acting, stop stop the drama. Yeah, instead of like, wow, my kid's having some real feelings here, and let her have it, let her let it out. Instead, we just suppressed it, and it came out sideways in the form of like anxiety and depression or whatever. So I can appreciate the things I got from them, but I certainly as can appreciate the fact that I've learned so much about how to be a, a better parent for my kids. You describe your late 40s as being riddled with midlife crisis and a lot of anxiety. Can you talk a little bit about why things started to fall apart for you? I think it was like I was sort of getting towards the end of the 40s, my late 40s, and I started just seeing life happening. Like I had a girlfriend of mine who 
was this beautiful woman. She's a realtor friend of mine. And I just started seeing her spinning out. And she had a a lot of physical surgery. So she was on a lot of pain meds all the time. And I started to watch her spin out. And I started thinking, wow, she's like losing her mind. And I was like, that's scary. Like, I just started noticing life happening, real life stuff. And, um, and then she really spun out. And then she actually ended up, you know, losing her life because she, she just, she lost it. She just lost it. And something about that was kind of weird. And I remember uh, getting into like perimenopausal stuff and you start having anxiety or you start feeling like weird sleeping stuff. And then, I don't know, I just started to have more fears. And I think the greatest thing of all was getting to 50, I started thinking, I started listening to people, which I normally didn't do, but start, people started saying things like, you know, it's now, you've done enough. You should start focusing on your kids now. Stop worrying about your your career and your dreams now. People were telling you that you you needed to stop working, that your basically ambition had to go away? Yeah, basically. It's that enough. doesn't work for people like you or me. It really doesn't, and it almost killed me. It almost killed me because you have nothing if you have no desires. You know, that's all you operate on is desire and bliss and what makes you happy and joyful. And so I think what happened was I started listening for some reason, and sometimes the work kind of gets slower, and then you start questioning yourself again, like maybe I'm not going to book again. Will I ever book again? And it's like you started to buy into this idea totally that you were too it. old to do any totally of this. Totally bought it. Totally bought into it. And it scared the shit out of me. But then something amazing happened. Yeah. So what happened was I started having all this anxiety and I ended up going to a therapist who started to allow me to start. He started playing these games with me about boundaries, you know, like here's a rope. Where, where do you want me to sit today? And I'd laugh because nobody really gave me permission to and safely say, I don't want you to be here right now. I don't want to talk to you about that right now. I don't want you in my space right now. I don't want you touching me right now. Like nobody ever told me it was safe to do that or say that. It was like I was getting permission for the first time, which is again, another thing I didn't quite learn from my, my parents that were cultured differently, that it was okay to say no. It was okay to say, which is the culture of all these women that have had all these sexual um, molestations from all these high-end producers. I mean, I've had so many of those situations where I try to say no, and it, it didn't seem to matter what you said because, you know. But at any rate, I started to get my voice back, and, and then there was a very pivotal thing that happened is I, I met this young girl who was like, well, what do you love to do? And I was like, I can't remember anymore. I forgot. And I'd say, she'd say, well, try to remember what you used to love to do. And I'd say, well, I used to remember loving just having a cappuccino at a cafe with a friend. And that just seemed so simple. And she said, okay, that's cool. What else do you love to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And she, I, used to, I used to love country western dancing. And she'd be like, okay, you have to go country western dancing this week. And you have to go have cappuccino twice with two friends. And I was like, I can't even get myself out of the house to do that. And she's like, you have to do it. And I, I followed directions because my life depended on it because I knew I was so spiraled down and I drove myself to some faraway Podunkian country Western bar far away. No one would go with me. I went alone. I pretended I knew someone at the bar when I walked in like, oh, you know, where's my friend? Are they here? Looking around like, and then luckily some stranger grabbed me and asked me to dance. And I danced like eight dances around this. And I was watching this live band play these songs. And the lights were twinkling and sparkling and and everything was spinning. And I was watching all this stuff happen. And I started to feel like something lifted out of my body. And it was so powerful. And I was like, I remember. I remember I'm supposed to do things that I love. I remembered. So you lost your way for a minute. Yeah, I lost my way. And that was a pivotal moment. And from that moment on, I started to do the work to set boundaries and start saying yes to music again, which took me to a friend asking me to sing on her show called Balcony TV LA. And I was like, well, I'm just starting to get back into my music again. I'm not sure. She goes, just one song on guitar, just you. And I was scared because I hadn't been playing or singing. My chops weren't up. And I said, okay, I'll do it because I have to say yes to everything that I love. That was my promise to myself. It's a good one. Yeah, it was a really good one. And I said, yeah, and I sang and it was went really well. Shortly after that, that same woman called me and said, I hope you're not mad at me, but I got you on audition for The Voice. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. Like, I'm too old for that. I mean, my kids are going to think that's so dumb. You know, they're going to be embarrassed. And then the other part of me came in and said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, that's what I love to do. So I said yes. And then I ended up somehow at 50. Your immediate reaction was you were too old to do it. 
I was, but, but then your voice kicked in. That, you the healthier yourself. voice that I promised myself kicked in. And I said... The voice, that's a really big deal. It was a huge deal. And out of like hundred thousands of people that audition, to make it down to the final 30 that get on that show and get on Team Blake was like, was kind of a miracle at that point in my life. And it just reminded me like, you never can stop doing what you love to do, ever. You have hundreds of IMDb credits uh, to your name. You've been working consistently since 1979. What do you consider your biggest success so far? I would have to say the one-woman show, Listen Closely, to me was sort of a wrap-up of a lot of things in my life, a lot of powerful truths, a lot of my personal growth, a lot of how my success happened all in one show. So I would say people get a chance to go watch it. I filmed it. It's on it's on egdaily.com website or Amazon. It really, to me, was one of my most favorite pieces of work because it sort of re- it, it it used everything that I was about. Do you know what I love? What I love that your biggest moment of success to you is not the thing that made you the most money. I never thought of that. That's really interesting. I no, think that's didn't. really powerful, and that's a good message to people wow. because I'm sure that. Rugrats and other things paid a lot more than that, yeah. but the thing that brought you the most joy and feeling was the of success show that was the deepest was something that was, was really near and dear to your that's heart. That's exactly right. I couldn't end this interview without asking you to do one more thing, and I'm sure everyone listening is really going to appreciate this. So I'm going to ask you some questions, yeah, and I'd love for you to answer in some voices for okay. me. So let's start with Tommy Pickles. Tommy, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, um, let me see here. Um, this morning I had some little tiny, little tiny um, quinoa, which is sort of a hard word to say, but I had some quinoa meatballs that were so good and they were sweet. Wow, I didn't know Tommy Pickles ate so healthy. No, I really don't usually like that. I much prefer sugar. But today I had some quinoa meatballs. Okay, Buttercup. Yes. How many pets do you have and what are their names? Well, right now we've got four and sometimes we have five and sometimes we might even have six. And and basically it just is a matter of uh, how many we can get in the house at one time. And what are their names? Avocado and Bubblebee. Those are the two Rottweilers. And then there's Bibi. She's a really tiny little chihuahua. And then there's Ruby, and she's another little tiny chihuahua. Okay, last one. Baby Mumble. What's your favorite time of the year, and why? Not when it's feezy, I'll tell you. Not when it's feezy. (laughs) EG, thank you so much for being the first ever woman who rules on the She Dynasty podcast. It's been amazing to sit with you and hear about your journey and for you to open up about some of your most personal moments. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Valerie. And we hope to hear from you soon and see what's next for you. We're really excited for your future. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.